going to whisper some things to you now about crunch chocolate bars. Because apparently this whispering thing is a thing that makes you feel things. It's saying something crunchy is coming in the candy wrapper language. Mm. Imagine your tongue hiking up those crispy, rocky ridges. Now, drum roll, please. Wow, that's good. Crunchy, munchy chocolate doesn't whisper. Turn up the fun with Crunch. If you're thinking, I should go for a run today, but it looks like it could rain, Sierra says save on epic rain jackets. If you're also thinking, but I can't go out in these beat-up old running shoes, Sierra says save on top brand running shoes. And if you're still thinking, but I'm also busy performing brain surgery, well, then we say... You really should have led with that. Sierra, let's get moving to your local store, like now. Go! Hi there, and a warm welcome to the Radio Times podcast with me, Jane Garvey, and TV critic Rihanna Dillon. Now, this is the place where we recommend what's hot and what's not on TV right now. Uh, Rihanna, what have we got coming up this week? Oh, we've got a really good week, actually. We've got Magpie Murders, Rooney, The Fear Index, and Fantastic Beasts and Natural History. Gotta be honest, it was my, my desire to feature the Wayne Rooney documentary uh, on on this podcast, but I think um, that maybe Wayne and I have won you over. Also this week, we are joined by the Radio Times journalist David Butcher. He's going to talk us through his top five Peaky Blinders greatest moments as we eagerly await the return of the hit show. It's coming back to BBC One on the 27th of February. I should say that it's also on the cover of this week's very moody Radio Times magazine, which is out today. Tommy Shelby is, of course, on the cover of this week's magazine. So how's your week been, Rihanna? Any showbiz encounters, any gossip? Or are you just concerned about your pets? What's happening? I've had a few. Uh, What happened? I interviewed... I did a panel for the Discovery of Witches, interviewed Trevor Eve, who my mum has a massive crush on. He's actually quite charming. Well, your mum and I have a lot of similar tastes because I bet she remembers Trevor Eve in Shoestring. That was it. That's what, yes, it was Shoestring, which I've obviously never heard of. Um, oh, God. <laughs> she said it only ran for a for like a year and she was really surprised because it obviously had such an impact on her. I used to love it. It had a colossal impact <laughs> on everyone. <laughs> I loved him in Waking the Dead, not... That was like a nice forensic murder show that me and my dad used to watch together. One of those nice forensic yeah, murder yeah, shows. Yeah, I loved it. It was very Lovely. gentle for a forensic murder show. Um, and I also had a had a quite a raucous night out on Monday and I ended up in one of those all-night diners, you know, which you, you feel really quite dirty about the next day. No, I've got no idea what you're talking about. Um, where are these all-night diners? This one was um, somewhere in central London. Don't ask me exactly where. Uh, no, oh, Liverpool Street. It was Liverpool Street. <laughs> oh right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, we got turned away from a couple of places and ended up in an all night diner. It was it was great fun. Great crack. Sounds pretty memorable. <laughs> I also have had a night out this week, um, and it was a big one by my standards. And I know when I got home because I looked at the clock. 10.35, everybody. <laughs> no. And I thought, Jane, you've absolutely stormed it. What a night. Um, and I took the precaution, popped a couple of ibuprofen and a big pint of water before I took to my bed. <laughs> and there we are. The classic um, hangover cure. Has that been with you since your student days? Uh, I don't think ibuprofen had been invented in my student <laughs> day. Not that we were aware of. 
But it is true. As you get older, you develop your own survival techniques and you just also have to learn that, quite frankly, sometimes, Rihanna, nights out are best avoided. OK, that's why television was invented. So nobody needs to go out. Let's get to the reviews. Anthony Horowitz's best-selling murder mystery, Magpie Murders, has now been turned into a six-part series. It is available to watch on BritBox now. And here's a clip. Lock and chop. That's you, isn't it? In three of the books, he based a character on you. The dim detective. That's why you're so angry. Now, you listen to me, Miss Ryland. I'm here because Claire's on her own, and she's just lost her brother in the worst circumstances. All right. Did you tell her of your suspicions? That the Conway didn't write that letter, or that someone forced him to write yeah. it? Yeah, well, I'm glad to hear it. Because this is the real world, and I don't need some fancy editor from London, parsing around pretending to be some sort of private detective. Now, you find your chapter, if that's really what you're here for. But once you've done that, you stay out of my way. Gosh, I mean, that is a warning, isn't it? Um, it would certainly chill my blood. OK, um, this is Magpie Murders. I think some people thought this best-selling murder mystery by Anthony Horowitz was probably unfilmable, but uh, it turns out it isn't. Leslie Manville is the big draw here, isn't she? Plenty of other people in it too. I've got to say, I found the whole concept a little baffling, but you know better, Rihanna. I mean, I'm sorry that you did find it baffling. I absolutely loved this. This is so a bit of me because it's very like, you know, tiny little towns in the 50s. There's murder. There are incredible actors in this. Like you say, Leslie Manville, who, by the way, she is so like you, Jane. <laughs> it's funny you mention that because in this show, she is wearing a jacket that I own. Oh, right. So, so literally is, I she feel like... She could the, be me. She could be you. But also she makes, really early on in episode one, she made a face and I was immediately, that's a, that's a Jane face. Jane makes that face. And then throughout... I'm quite flattered uh, by the comparison. I'm not sure Leslie oh, would be, but anyway. Like you have so many parallels. Uh, yeah, I thought you'd this would be so up your street just because you'd, you'd see so much of yourself in this woman. So Leslie Manville is an editor and one of her clients, one of the writers that she reps is uh, Alan Conway. And uh, he writes the Atticus Pund detective series, kind of like Agatha Christie, Sherlock Holmesy, and just as popular apparently within this series. And as you say, this, this particular story is quite a tricky one to get your head around because it's filmed in the present day and that is Leslie Manville. But then you also have this story that's set in the 50s, the book, exactly, yeah. which which comes to life in her head. She sees it around her a little bit. And we are also kind of immersed in the 50s story as well. And then you have actors who are playing two different parts, one in the present day, one in this story, in this fiction, fictionalised yeah. world. So I can understand the setup is complicated. <laughs> It, it is for me. I've, I've got to be honest. Not to say that I didn't enjoy parts of it, but I was at times a little confused and slightly unsettled. Uh, also, we, we should say that Alan Conway is not a very nice man, is he, the writer? He's really nasty. And Conleth Hill is, I think, absolutely fantastic. You'll know him from Game of Thrones. He plays Lord Varys. Um, and... He's, he's, he's clearly having so much fun being a complete ass in this. And it's, it's just, it's brilliant. But also the rest of the cast, you have Claire Rushbrook um, as 
Leslie Manville, Susan Ryland's sister. Um, you have Danny Mays, who we heard in the clip there, as a very kind the of detective. simple He's detective. always a detective. He is, isn't he? But again, really kind of hamming it up in this one. Um, just lots and lots of recognisable faces. Even Jude Hill, who plays the little boy in Belfast, who some of you might have seen in the cinemas recently, is in this um, as a little boy in the 50s. So yeah, I just, I thought it was so much fun. I honestly can't get over Leslie Manville's performance because just every time she's in anything, I'm just blown away by her because she's so natural. I love Leslie Manville too. I think that the show on the BBC that a lot of people remember is Mum, which I loved. Um, It was on recently. It was incredibly funny and incredibly sad and poignant mm. and uh, all about the sort of complexities of family relationships and stuff. She's just brilliant and she looks as though she's enjoying being in this, actually. Yes, she really does. And I think for the actors generally, Leslie is one of the few that doesn't have to play two parts. Um, but I think they're all clearly really enjoying those sorts of echoes and repetitions across the two different periods. And what I, what I really like the, is the, like, the detailing of like the the craft so for example the sound sort of bleeds into the different eras so you think you're in one era and you hear a car coming and it drives past and it is a 50s car but it's a 50s car in the present day things like that which I I really like that and also you notice that the colour sort of slightly seeps out of the 50s it looks a little bit more sepia or a bit washed out it does and and so then you know that you're in a different era just in case the really oldie schoolie Somerset uh, (laughs) Suffolk accent (laughs) didn't give it away I'm not sure I liked all the accents I felt (laughs) some were perhaps verging on a little too uh, overripe but anyway um, yeah this is a very carefully made and clever programme I have to say um, I think a lot of people, Rihanna, will think, well, I really fancy this magpie murder. Sounds good stuff, but I'm not sure how to get BritBox. So what do people do? So you can either subscribe directly to BritBox, I think, at BritBox.co.uk, or you can do it through your Amazon Prime account, but you still, I think, have to pay extra for the BritBox subscription. But you're able yeah. to get it on Amazon Prime. That's how I watch it. OK, but it is noticeable that BritBox are making more and more um, original shows yes, they that had, are of high quality. They had um, The Beast Must Die recently with Kush Jumbo, Jared Harris. But you can also get things like, you know, Bad Girls on there and <laughs> Grange Hill. So British classics. <laughs> the Secrets of the Craze is another new a kind of original one. Must be clear, Magpie Murders on BritBox now. Uh, it's all available. You can gobble the whole thing up and Rihanna would encourage you to do exactly that. Next up this week, Rooney, uh, which is a documentary about the well-known, currently the manager of Derby County, formerly a megastar with Everton, Manchester United and England. Uh, It's about Wayne Rooney and it's available to watch on Prime Video now. So to whet your appetite, here is a clip from Rooney. Have you forgiven him? I wouldn't be standing here if I hadn't forgiven him. When these these things have happened, I've... Um, we've sat down, I've explained what's happened um, and it's not nice, it's not a nice thing to, to have to do or to do. It won't happen again, I don't want it to happen again and um, for us to, to get through it, it's tough. I had tough, tough days, tough weeks, tough months but I feel um, we've been through 
hard times and it does make you stronger as well. That's Wayne himself. Uh, before that, you heard from Colleen answering a question about, that's his wife, Colleen, I should say, answering a question about whether or not she has forgiven him uh, because uh, people who follow uh, the saga will know that there have been one or two instances over the years where he's got himself into a spot of bother. Um, OK, Rihanna, I'm hedging my bets a bit there and dancing around what actually happened. How much did you know about Wayne Rooney before I forced you to watch this documentary? Oh, I knew quite a bit, to be honest. I was a Manchester United fan at the time when he was at Man U, when I was at school, because I started supporting Man U when I was about four, because all the boys in my class did. So, of course, what else was I going to do? Such a sheep. And... Um, and so this was sort of like peak time when I was getting really into it with with my friends. Again, boys in my class, <laughs> as a pattern, um, as a teenager. And because of the kind of like Euro fever, I remember having like my face painted and in my like England shirt going to school, visiting my grandma in hospital later that day. Like it was just, it really did kind of grip the nation. And weirdly, watching this documentary took me right back to those years. And it was really nice. <laughs> you know, I had really kind of fond memories of that time. Um, and then remembering all of that, the kind of, you felt like you had been almost let down by Wayne Rooney's personal life as as a teenager. And remember being so sort of upset by just behaviour of footballers, which I always have been. It was a thing that in the end stopped me from supporting football at all. I just got so fed up with the ex extracurricular. And um, to put it mildly, that doesn't appear to have got much better, no. but we can't really go in for legal reasons, can't go into that. But what we can say is that Wayne Rooney is um, in many ways, well, in this, this documentary reveals him to be quite a vulnerable person mm -hmm. in, in, in lots of ways. I found him quite likeable. I think he's become much more self-aware. Mm. It also made you understand a little bit more the enormous and absurd pressure that he was put under at such a young age. I mean, just ridiculous. And you wonder how much of the right sort of support he had around him at that time. Oh, absolutely. And there wouldn't have been any real support because it's all that sort of laddie culture. And that's what I... So when you're a teenager, you buy into all of those headlines. You don't you think about this world that they are immersed in and the bubble that they're in and the fact that he was only 17, 18, 19 going through this. I mean, God, if people were still remembering the antics that I was up to at that age, I would be absolutely mortified if everyone I knew and spoke to knew about that just off the cuff because it had been all over the front page 20 years ago. You know, that I just think that that it, this documentary really made me think and reassess all of those ideas that I had about him and just, the, you know, kind of people in the spotlight in heat magazine or whatever i was reading at the time so from that perspective it feels really important actually this documentary as well as being quite nostalgic and a, a kind of fun time in my life to revisit and i as you say i i like that he's able to reflect in his own time and in his own words because as you see he's he doesn't he doesn't speak super quickly he he's not He's, he, he is a man of kind of few words and you can tell that he is having to be, have answers coaxed out of him. But when he does say something, it feels like he really, as you say, has reflected on it 
in a lot of detail. I have this this kind of sentimental desire for them to stay together mm-hmm. in spite of all the pressure. There's nothing the tabloids would enjoy more mm-hmm. than a really meaty, Rooney divorce. Yeah. And precisely because of that, I hope they stay, they <laughs> stick it out. <laughs> I really do. And I think Co- Colleen has got her head screwed on. Mm-hmm. She, she knows what she's doing. She's the brains of this particular outfit. Yeah, she's made and choices. She's made... Yes, yeah. She has definitely made choices and has, has stuck with them, which is really commendable. Um, there was all these kind of other bits where you sort of see them at home entertaining. You see their kids having tantrums and... You know, I'm like, is this inviting criticism about their parenting or not? You can't, you know, there are all these, I don't know how much you needed that. I really enjoyed hearing from the other footballers who were around at the time, Thierry Henry. I mean, there was a footballer who had grace and elegance and eloquence and was kind of always pitted almost against Rooney as everything that Rooney wasn't. And to hear him talk about what an incredible footballer Rooney was and for Beckham to be doing that and Gary Neville is I think was one of my favorite talking heads as well because he was quite honest about how he felt about Rooney from the beginning. Uh, Apart from the fact that this was too long by about 20 minutes um, I thought it was rather good I must admit. I watched it in three installments over two days and I think that was quite a good way of doing it because it didn't feel overly long to me. Okay, that. maybe that's advice yeah. for the non-football fan. <laughs> Rooney is available to watch on Prime Video now. And it's not just for football fans, although football fans will probably enjoy it more than most. Let's put it that way. Next, then, we're going to talk about The Fear Index. This is a four-episode series based on a 2011 novel by one of my favourite writers, the British author Robert Harris. It's airing weekly on Sky Atlantic, Thursdays at nine o'clock, final episode on the 3rd of March, and it's already available as a box set. Here's a clip from the first episode of The Fear Index. You OK? I'm OK. No, you. Do you know if anyone has a grudge against you? If anyone may have wanted to extort money from no, you. No, no. He disabled the alerts. How did he get in? What? Through the front gate. Did uh, anyone apart from you know the coach here? Maurice? Maurice Genoux, yeah. Maurice. Maurice Genoux? Oui. Uh, he's the head of security for my company. And for the house? Yeah. He, he took his shoes off. What? Why indeed. Um, One of the voices you can hear there is Josh Hartnett, who's having the most horrific time in the fear index. Uh, Now, I enjoyed this uh, without always understanding everything that was going on. (laughs) I feel like you approach most TV shows in that way. I certainly approach most thrillers with complicated plots about money and the financial (laughs) world with exactly that approach. This reminded me of a good Bond film where you don't get the plot at all. In fact, it's almost inconsequential, but you just go along for the ride. Mm. And there were parts of that for me in The Fear Index. I mean, I, I understood that Josh Hartnett's character, who'd been fired from CERN, had invented an algorithm that had potentially troubling troubling implications for the entire world. That's the gist of it, isn't it? So what is CERN? Oh, I was really hoping you'd ask me that. It is, of course, the home of the Hadron Collider. uh, And it's the, well, it's the European Organisation for Nuclear Research. It's one of the world's largest and most respected centres for scientific research. But it's widely known now as the home of the Hadron, the large Hadron Collider. 
Thanks, and Jane. Of course. Yeah, no, that's fine. Uh, and that is where Josh Hartnett's character had previously been working. But he wound up in this beautiful, another beautiful home, this time in Geneva. Oh, my goodness. I mean, this was just lovely. this was just house porn, really, wasn't it? I mean, it was a house yes. of a, a billionaire. And yeah. I was, it took me a while to figure out where it was. And then at the end, they say it's in Geneva. I mean, they might have said that right at the beginning and my geography is terrible, but... I was, I couldn't, I was thinking, everyone in this is English. Are they in, this isn't a place in England. This doesn't exist, surely. Um, And then I was like, is this in front? No, it's in, it's in Geneva. But it had tennis courts. It had huge rooms. They walk, like one of the characters walks in and he's like, I'm in here. And I was like, that wouldn't help you. That would just echo around this enormous (laughs) house and you just never find each other. It's like a little Escher painting or something. It's absolutely wild that they live in this place. Did you get as thrilled by it? And I, I was made rather tense by the fear index. I could see that Josh Hartnett's mind was being really thoroughly messed with and he was having a tough, tough time. And I got really involved in it and quite carried along by the whole thing. So I thought it was... I, I When it started, <laughs> I think I texted you and I was like, I hate this. And actually, you were like, stick with it. And I did for the episode and it was it, it, it got better um I just what I struggle with is people in shows who are losing it quite obviously as he is yeah, yeah and 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 I don't know why it frustrates me but I just think if if you had something going on and you were stressed or scared you would you would either say something or you would leave or you would do and they all just kind of sit there in silence until everyone around them is like are you okay what's going on something and and Oh, it just doesn't really make sense. It doesn't feel very realistic, Jane. Is my well, no. It, can I put it to you? It's not that realistic. No. Um, but Josh Hartnett's character is at the centre of this organisation. He has these hugely important and very wealthy backers mm. who want a need to trust in him. But he is visibly losing his mind mm. in front of them, and they are risking losing their entire vast personal fortunes. But actually. They are making money and they continue to make money on the back of his rather dubious invention. And it's sort of this whole conspiracy, isn't it, really? You sort of get the impression that anyone in his life could be a suspect in this yes. possible plot to to kind of bring him down. Because he it, the, the, the series starts with him receiving this first edition of Darwin and it's it's all and that's all it's all about fear and he is kind of fascinated, intrigued by this. He sees a picture of um, this book, you know, published hundreds of years ago. He sees a picture of a man in great pain or peril. I couldn't quite make it out. And then he sees that same man, in inverted commas, breaking into his house. And that's where the the sort of paranoia stems from. And suddenly all roads that he's tracing this book with and various bank accounts all lead back to him and you realise that he's being set up and suddenly everyone in his life from his beautiful wife who is a Leila Farzad who you might know from I Hate Susie she's excellent or even um Asha Ali who I loved in Ackley Bridge who kind of plays his right hand man Hugo who is very sinister and and handsome (laughs) He is very sinister. And I put it to you that there has never been a character in any drama called Hugo who wasn't very possibly a baddie. (laughs) It's... (laughs) 
<laughs> it's not a protagonist name, is it? Well, no, but it's never it's never the name of a good person. No, it's definitely um, an antagonist name. <laughs> um, I think I enjoyed this more than you, uh, and I watched it to the very end. Still, I'm not completely on board with what happened, okay. but I found myself caring more than I might normally do. So there you go. Um, anyway, eight out of ten from me, and I think more of a sort of five and a half from Rihanna. I'm, I'm who, unlike I'm, me. I'm going to keep. I mean, I'm going to keep with it, if not for Gregory Montel, who plays the. Um, the the French detective who you might know from Call My Agent who is I think he's really fun I think he's going to be a fun character yeah he is good and I think he's enjoying himself we should say that um, what happens here is that the Josh Hartnett character has come up with an algorithm that starts to behave in a rather sinister fashion. It's still making money for the investors who care very much about making even more money than they've already got, but it starts behaving in a somewhat sinister fashion. Um, I quite enjoyed this, as I hope I've made clear. It's The Fear Index on Sky Atlantic. You can watch it the old-fashioned way on Thursdays at nine o'clock. Final episode comes your way on the 3rd of March, or the whole thing is available, as I think a very bingeable box set right now. Okay, Correspondence Corner. Um, we've got some a very couple of international emails this week. Have you seen them? No. Okay, let me read them to you. We love to hear from you. The address is podcast at radiotimes.com. Um, Janet is exiled in North Carolina. She says, I love the podcast. I'm British. I'm living in North Carolina and I can only dream of the wonderful shows you critique. We don't even have Netflix. Um, Louis Theroux is correct. Um, it would be too difficult for him to do documentaries in the UK these days. I am that annoying fan. In 2002, I was in London and I happened to see Louis and his crew in Leicester Square outside a Michael Jackson event. I asked Louis for an autograph. There were no selfies in those days. And he was adamant, no. He explained that they were trying to make a thing about Michael Jackson, which actually became a thing about Yuri Geller. It just drew unnecessary attention to them even in those days. Um, well, there you go, Janet. I'm sorry that you're out there in North Carolina and don't even have Netflix. What earthly use you get out of this podcast, which is mainly chat about TV shows you can't watch, I don't know. But I'm delighted that you're there. Thank you. We enjoy your company um, as much as you enjoy ours from the sound of things. OK, podcast at radiotimes.com. Um, what have you got, Rihanna? This is from Kim in Dublin. I think they probably do have... Netflix in Dublin. Um, Kim says, hello, ladies. Just a note to express my extreme gratitude to you both for your wonderful podcast. I found it recently and have binge listened to it on my regular runs. The only problem is I'm up to date now and in severe withdrawal. Love the witty and insightful repartee and focus on the content. Not an ego trip for the presenters. Thanks so much. Keep up the great work. Thanks, Kim. Oh, thank you, Kim. Neither of us has got a scrap of ego. No, um, so that's brilliant. Not. No. That's what makes it work. Um, we are going to celebrate the return of Peaky Blinders in the company of David Butcher from the Radio Times. He's going to do one of his Butcher's Choice cuts for us this week. Our final review of this week then is Fantastic Beasts and Natural History. It's on Sunday, the 27th of February at seven o'clock on BBC One. Now, in this, the ever popular Stephen Fry looks at the inspiration of J.K. Rowling's Magical Creatures while discovering parallels from within our own muggle animal kingdom. Um, here's a quick clip. Goodness me, what is this place? You've... So this is the actual Cleveland Lloyd dinosaur quarry. And you've enclosed it to show off these amazing yes. specimens. So over here we have some back vertebrae from a chimerosaurus. Uh, from what animal? Chimerosaurus, so it's a herbivorous dinosaur. One of the big long necks. 
right next to it, we have a tail vertebrae of an allosaurus. Oh, yeah. The big predator, the major predator of the day. You can really see here, Casey, can't you, how the dragon myth can arise. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if you're finding stuff like this. And that <gasps> is a single tooth of an allosaurus. Oh my goodness. Now you are a massive, massive Harry Potter expert, Rihanna. Um, so I guess this programme would be right up your street, yes? I mean, yes, I am the reason it's it's on the programme, I think, because I really, really wanted to watch this. I am such a fan of Stephen Fry. He reads the Harry Potter books, so I have often gone to bed listening to him talking about all of these fantastically weird creatures that are in the wizarding world. And so I was expecting it to be almost more Harry Pottery than than it was. A lot of it is actually just Stephen Fry walking around the Natural History Museum, talking to experts, as we heard there, about all of these weird, wonderful creatures that we perhaps take for granted on our planet. For example, squid and creatures under the that live in the kind of deep depths of the sea that we we never actually we don't have a huge amount of knowledge about um and and going to see a dinosaur graveyard which was very very cool i loved that that was in utah wasn't it yes. that was incredible what an amazing i mean this is a place i didn't even know existed i never really heard i didn't know such place. i thought every dinosaur bone must be in some sort of museum not just in a quarry. It, oh, yeah. it looked like they barely got started on digging the stuff up there. It was incredible. I agree. Um, and he also talks to the now very controversial figure, J.K. Rowling, about some of her inspirations. So this is this is what maybe slightly confused me, because I was expecting them to really go into detail about the, the sort of the Harry Potter side and about the specific animals that we come across and maybe see more clips and things like that. We don't. This is this does feel like more of a Attenborough-esque doc about these sorts of creatures in real life than it does about the fantastical side. I love the bit where he went inevitably. I was hoping he'd go to Loch Ness and he does um, because I've always had a real interest in the Loch Ness monster. I desperately want that story to be true. I don't know why. Uh, and um, he, he goes on a, a vessel across the lock with a with a local who's... It's a boat. I think it's, it's, it goes on a boat, yeah. Yes, a boat, a vessel as we call it. <laughs> On Radio 4. And um, that this chap, was he was very funny because um, he'd obviously been looking for evidence of the Loch Ness Monster since forever. Hasn't really found it. And ha- um, hadn't, they hadn't have... grow- he hadn't really like cut his beard since he started looking, I don't think. It, no, I don't think he had. And there is now a method of, of looking for evidence of reptiles uh, in the Loch. And despite their best efforts, they found nothing at all to indicate that there may have been a reptile anywhere at any point in Loch Ness. But he did say this guy, and I cannot believe this is true, but it's a fascinating fact, that you could fit the entire human population of planet Earth into Loch Ness three times over. What? Because it's so it's so deep. That was one of the facts I took away from that encounter. Oh, I missed that. I just can't believe that. I honestly can't believe that. It may or may not be true, but it was a, a fact <laughs> alleged, stated in that show. Okay. So I enjoyed this um, perhaps more than I expected to. And it sounds like you were a bit let down. I, only only because I was yeah expecting uh, just a bit more Harry Potter chat. And so the less Harry Potter chat, the more disappointed I am in life generally. But actually, it was a really entertaining programme. And I, like you, have always loved learning about like Greek mythology and, and hearing about all of those monsters. So... One of my favourite things that I took away from this was the fact that Christopher Columbus apparently wrote in his diary that he saw mermaids on his voyage, but that they were quite masculine looking mermaids. (laughs) And now that they think 
that the things that he saw might have just been manatees, <laughs> which don't look like, <laughs> which don't look like men is, or mermaids. No, or, <laughs> it, they just. If I were a mermaid, I'd be really <laughs> insulted by that comparison. It really made me laugh. I thought it was great, and and then that's a really nice excuse for um for Stephen Fry. He had a little swim with the manatees in Florida, which was actually quite a nice moment. Um, so they they I I really did love seeing all of these extraordinary creatures talking about narwhals and their extremely long horn which apparently is is a tooth again yes fas- yeah. just fascinating so yeah i think forget the the kind of harry potter stuff and just i just loved hearing about the impact that these creatures have had on our storytelling generally yeah I, I agree. I thought that that element of it was properly interesting. And it's one of those programmes where, honestly, the whole family can sit quietly mm. in front of it and everybody <laughs> will get something out of it, won't they? That's uh, Fantastic Beasts, A Natural History. It goes on the telly on Sunday, the 27th of February at 7 o'clock, BBC One. And then, of course, it will be on the iPlayer. Let's go to the return of the incredibly influential and hugely successful Peaky Blinders. We are joined by David Butcher from the Radio Times for Butcher's Choice Cuts. He has picked his top five Peaky Blinders greatest moments for us here on the Radio Times podcast. The show returns for six episodes beginning on Sunday the 27th of February at nine o'clock on BBC One. Um, David, why is Peaky Blinders so important? It's got incredible storytelling, incredible characters, but in particular it has a, a very special style to it and a visual feel. Uh, which isn't quite like anything else. I mean, you can say things that it's drawn on and obviously it feels influenced by Westerns and uh, Scorsese and The Sopranos and all sorts of other things, but it's very much its own thing. Um, You better just tell us exactly when and where it's set then, David. It's a period drama set in Birmingham. You know, nobody had done anything like that before. Um, And it's about a gangster family uh, who run bookie shops and uh, they're bootleggers and all sorts of other things. And they're led by Tommy Shelby, played by Killian Murphy, who's... uh, all, all All the male characters have been... Uh, fighting the First World War. The female characters have been keeping the sort of criminal empire going through the First World War. And it starts, I think the first season, it starts in 1919. Uh, and by the time, the season that's just about to, to start on BBC One, we've reached 1933. And I'm really glad that we're starting. One of your greatest moments features the late Helen McCrory, who played Aunt Polly. So tell us then about your very first favourite greatest moment from Peaky Blinders. Well, this is uh, a scene from uh, the last series which was 2019 it's been off our screens for a while but this was a scene with a ballet uh, that Tommy was having uh, uh, he was holding a sort of dinner party at his house where there was a performance of Swan Lake but in the midst of this Polly is taken aside by Abarama Gold who is a sort of an ally sort of a sometime rival of, of of the Shelby's and he proposes to her in a, in a beautiful way. And I think we can hear the clip. But then later on, the scene turns very ugly, all while, the, all while Swan Lake is unfolding in the background. It's extraordinary. I heard there was a family occasion. Look, I'm sorry, Linda. That animal inside me, it comes out and I can't stop it. <laughs> Linda, I... Without you, I can Come inside, please. His name was Frederick. 
All we ever did was talk, Arthur. He just listened. Holly Gray, Gypsy Queen, will you marry me? A poor commoner who loves you. We should warn people that there are spoilers if they haven't yes, seen any thinking, Peaky Blinders. Yeah. But um, that is a moment when Polly intervenes and, in fact, stops Arthur's wife shooting him dead uh, as the climax of this, when she's just been, been proposed to. But she was extraordinary. Um, and I think uh, the other thing that, that the show has done brilliantly well is come up with, with enemies for the main character, Tommy Shelby. It's very good at coming up with, with, with strong antagonists. But we've kind of forgotten that in Series 1 and Series 2, the main guy was played by Sam Neill, who played this police inspector from uh, Northern Ireland with a wonderful kind of Ulster accent uh, that he really got his teeth into. And he and Tommy had a wonderful interplay for the first couple of series, including this scene from uh, the second episode of, of Season 2, where Tommy's in hospital and... Campbell, the Sam Neill character, goes in there and kind of taunts him. And I think we can we can hear a clip from it. Mr. Shelby, our reunion is part of a very carefully worked out plan, which has been in place for some time now. Every time you need in that stick, but you see her face. And as a result of the information in my possession, I can charge you with murder at any time. And provide two unpackable crime witnesses' testimony. The next highlight that I want to select uh, is Tom Hardy as Alfie Solomons. And in this wonderful scene, it's it's season three, episode six, and Tommy Shelby has gone to the, the Tom Hardy character and said, look, you threatened my child, my boy, you crossed a line. And at that point, Alfie Solomon goes absolutely berserk. Uh, and Tom Hardy does this wonderful rant where he points out that Tommy Shelby has killed any number of people in his time. And I think the line he has is, he who fights by the sword, he dies by it, Tommy. Uh, except there's about 25 F words in there, which is why we can't <laughs> use the clip. Some of them probably written by Stephen Knight. Quite a few, I imagine, added by Tom Hardy uh, on the day. OK, what else have you got for us? We've had your top three. What about number four? Music is a huge part of Peaky Blinders and the appeal of Peaky Blinders. And I think it was pretty much the first period drama that used modern pop music as a way to create atmosphere. Apparently, David Bowie, before he died, he was quite a fan of the show and he let it be known that they could use music from his final album uh, on the show. And in the it's season three, episode five, the opening scene, they used David, the David Bowie song, Lazarus, beautifully, uh, and create this extraordinary kind of montage as... Tommy is recovering from another beating. He's got a fractured skull. He's remembering his time in the trenches in the First World War. He's kind of getting flashbacks to that. The fact that this is a drama that it, that got to use Bowie music uh, is, an, is a, gives us an idea of how kind of special it is, really. So then to your final greatest moment, and this is really exciting for people because you've picked something from the first episode in this new new run. Tell us about that. It's 1933. And Tommy Shelby turns up on this island uh, where everyone's very unhappy because they've seen their criminal kind of livelihoods go down the tubes. And he walks into a bar and the barman asks him what he wants. And he says, I'll have a glass of water, which is a big shock for us as viewers, because it, heavy drinking is a big far, part of the mythology of, of 
Peaky Blinders uh, and certainly from Tommy Shelby. Uh, so it turns out he's gone teetotal, which is a big shot. They're not very happy about this in this bar. And one of the characters there who's a bit of a hothead, a bit drunk, starts to try and pick a fight with him. And it's very much like a cowboy movie scene. There's the cool hero. There's somebody trying to provoke him. And we think, look, don't go there, mate. You, you'll regret it. And we know something's brewing. But when it breaks out, it's a classic Peaky Blinders piece of beautifully orchestrated violence uh, that is kind of poetic in its way and has lovely visual touches. Um, and it, it it's great to know that the, the show can still pull it out of the bag like that. A lot of people, David, will be really missing the presence of, of Helen McCrory, who, as Aunt Polly, was a, such a significant part of Peaky Blinders. She was a huge part of it, and it'll be interesting to see how the show manages without her, because she was very much the female lead, she was the matriarch of the clan, and in a way she was the centre of power. Um but the first episode of the new series does deal with uh, the fact that that Aunt Polly won't be there anymore. It gives her ca- that character a suitable kind of send off, and it is dedicated to the memory of Helen McCrory. And it's quite a a low key episode in a way. And I think maybe that's because it would have felt it wouldn't have felt quite right to come out all guns blazing. But yes, it's less than a year ago that that Anne McCrory died. Peaky Blinders returns then to BBC One at nine o'clock on Sunday, the 27th of February. It is time for What We Watched, which is a highlight of both of our weeks, I think. Well, maybe not when I'm on the receiving end, but I do really enjoy asking you the questions. This is the quiz where you give me televisual clues, or the other way around, and I have to name the year, or you do, depending on the week. OK, yes. it's this week, and it's my turn to answer the question. What have you got for me? Oh, oh we need to we do need the, the fanfare. fanfare. <laughs> I was expecting well, William Tell that, to go into the Yeah. We're going off for a big hunting expedition. <laughs> Looking for a manatee, I think. What are the clues? What have you got for me? Your first clue is that John Nettles appeared in his final ever episode of Midsummer Murders in this year, having starred in a total of 81 episodes since the series was launched in 1997. Here's a clip. Hello, Angela. The spa's closed. We're not doing any more treatments. Oh, what a shame. Yes. It is. No, I mean, a shame for you and your father. That's quite a double act you've got going there, isn't it, mate? I don't know what you mean. You're not? Well, the clients sign into this place. They're given the once-over by your father, and they're um, vulnerable. And they tell him things they probably wouldn't even tell their own GP. I know I did. And that, Miss Danby, is how you knew about my father. OK, I'm thinking about it. I don't think I've ever successfully watched an entire episode of Midsummer Murders, but um, you have I know it exists. Tried. <laughs> and I know I'm never buying a house in Midsummer, that's for sure. Um, uh, what else? OK, the second clue is that Colleen Nolan announces her decision to quit ITV daytime panel show Loose Women after over 10 years as a panellist. Uh, but first, uh, to something that we already know, but uh, Colleen, you've got something that you want to tell everyone. Oh, yes. Well, um, I am going to be kind of moving on to Pastures New, I'm afraid. Oh. Thank you. That was so worth that tenner, wasn't it? 
um, but yeah, you know, I've, I've lots of other projects coming up and stuff, but um, I've still got four and a half months left with you girls, so Ooh. don't relax too soon. <laughs> There's many more things I can be getting up to in four and a half months. Four and a half months is quite a long time in advance to announce you're leaving somewhere. Yeah, I thought that was quite a strange clip. Um, also, she, I mean, we should never take ourselves too seriously in the world of show, should we? But, um, you know, where she says there she's got lots of other projects coming up. What do you think? We've all said that, love. <laughs> We've all used that line. Yeah, um, it's a good one. Okay. All right. Okay. Final, yeah. the final clue. And actually, we, we were having a chat about this very woman off air. Um, Gemma Collins made her debut in the second series of ITV2 reality TV series, The Only Way is Essex. Towie, of course. And warning, this clip and indeed the whole show contains some casual misogyny. So, how are you leaving your deposit then? Um, I'm going to have to, I'm going to, I do like this car, but I'm going to have okay. a look around. But how, how did you get into the old selling the car? It's not really girly, is it? Um, well, I do love it. I'm very passionate about my job, as you can see. Because of my career, like, my life is my job. Yeah. You know, the thing is with me, Kirk, I'm looking for my Mr. Right. I can't find him anywhere. Who is your Mr. Right? Describe him. I want power? someone powerful. Like, Tony Soprano's attitude. Right. But like Mr. Big from Sex in the City, the whole Carrie and Big love affair, I just want it. Sounds like my dad. Really? Yeah, yeah. Oh my God. Bit, do, 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 uh, do, do older men, bloody hell. Do you do a day older men? Or, or? Um, I suppose 50's about my maximum. Oh, my dad's not there. Really? All of that repulsed me. Well, it's, it's a clip that hasn't aged terrifically well for a multitude of reasons. Um, it does make me realise how much has changed in the last couple of years. Um, we were talking about Gemma Collins because I had watched her Channel 4 documentary on self-harm this week, which um, I, I actually thought was 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 good, uh, if I'm honest. I mean, I, I should say, be careful to say, I don't have any personal experience of self-harm, so I would hesitate to recommend it um, because I'm not sure I'm qualified to recommend it in a way. But I thought she was very good at drawing attention to her own personal issues and particularly her relationship with her mum. So if it, just in case anyone was tempted to dismiss that as a programme because of their what they thought they knew about Gemma Collins. I would just maybe say sometimes don't rush to judgment. There's yeah, always fair enough. there's always more to it. Um so did you watch her in her debut episode of Towie? I didn't, but I'm fairly <laughs> certain that this the year we're thinking about would mm -hmm. be uh, Colleen. It's the Colleen thing has really got me thinking. Uh, <laughs> I think it's 2011. Oh, my God. God's sake. Is it right? Yes, it's right. Yes. Well done. <laughs> and I promise you, this isn't a setup. I had more clues that I was very, very happy to give, um, but I knew you were going to get it from that. I can't believe you got it from Colleen leaving. <laughs> Well, everybody remembers where they were when Colleen Nolan <laughs> left Loose Women for the first time. Um, another triumph for me then, if you want to break down of the listings of the programmes we've talked about today, then make sure you look at the episode notes wherever you get your podcast. And don't forget to write to us, podcast at radiotimes.com. We do love your correspondence and you can get us on Facebook, Twitter and Insta at Radio Times. Nice and easy. The Radio Times podcast is produced by Something Else for Immediate Media. Thanks for listening. Have a decent week. <laughs>